0: If you have your Bible, this will do open up to Hebrews chapter 3. As I continue to speak on the subject of sin and temptation, uh, as I shared several weeks ago, I'll be doing a series on it. Especially over the last two years, I've known four to five ministers, national ministers, that have fallen into sin, three into sexual sin. These are men that have large congregations, and two others that have fallen into sins of pride. They've lost their ministries, and they've stepped down, and it just uh, this last one just awoke me to to really deal with this in a little more depth. We don't want to think we're beyond that, neither myself or anybody else. That any of us can fall into the trap. And we're going to look at it today of, of, of temptation and, and to fall into sin. So no matter who we are, where we are, what our ministry role is, if we have one, if we don't, if we're husbands, if we're wives, if we're fathers, if we're mothers, or grandmothers, we need to be careful at all times. And the only way to do that is to have one antenna up at all times, knowing that sin and temptation is serious. And you know that it is grace sufficient for all our needs we really need to watch out and be careful as Paul admonishes us to uh, be careful that you stand lest you fall. There's no, no, no temptation as overtaking that's not common to man. So we need to be careful. So that's the, my motivation behind this is we need to be careful. We need to take this serious. So last time I spoke, we spoke about uh, the sin of pride, how we think we're above certain sins, how we think we can just walk in the culture, a sinful culture, uh, a, a moral wilderness and think that if we're not careful we're going to be above it and we're not going to fall to it and then say oh how did this happen I don't think those ministers that I'm talking about now would say to any man I have no idea how this happened I have no idea how I ended up in the arms of thy secretary I just, I just don't know how that happens no everyone that falls into sin after it's done and the Ponzi scam is over, and, and the scales are pulled back, and you realise, How did I not recognize it? How did I not call it what it was? Anybody's ever fallen to sin, I'm sure, I can look back and say, It was there before my eyes at all times, and I did not heed the warnings. I can tell you now if you are a born again child of God, none of us are exempt from falling into sin, and I can tell you this, that God, along the way, before anyone falls into a great sin, I can tell you now, God was reaching out prior to that to warn us. Amen? Amen. Otherwise, he's a liar. That God sends his word in many different ways to say, be careful, put the brakes on, turn around. And we're going to look at another story today, and we're going to look at the deceitfulness of sin. The last time we, we looked at how our, we can blind ourselves to realities of falling into sin and think we're above it, tonight we're going to look at the deceitfulness of sin. I think that is the title, deceitfulness of sin, starting in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. I will read to verse 15. <coughs> Therefore, holy brothers, you who, are, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, that's God, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. That's the New Testament. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. That's redemption in Christ. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father God, that you're always speaking to us that you're speaking to us today, every day, Lord God. And the last thing any true believer would ever want to do is to harden our hearts to your voice, God. God, save us from falling into the deceitfulness of sin and having an unbelieving evil heart that falls away from the living God. God, do a deep spiritual search in us, God. There might be men and women here today that might be on the verge of their foot almost slipping, until they entered the house of the Lord. Today might be a day that if they had not made it here, God, they were going to surely go into a bad place. So, Lord, speak to our hearts, Father God. Let your word never, ever return empty or void, Father God. But let it do its purpose, that for which it was set out to do, Father God. Convict us and strengthen us and give us hope, I ask, Father God. In Jesus' name, amen. The deceitfulness of sin. I'm going to take a drink of water look at everybody, see all the smiling faces some perplexed faces they're wondering does this sermon apply to me is he thinking of me he knows something the pastor knows something I see a couple of guilty faces out there on December 10th 2008 Bernie Madoff's sons told the authorities that their father had confessed to them personally that the Asset management unit, uh, uh, asset management unit of his firm, was a massive Ponzi scheme in two thousand and eight, and they quoted their father as describing the whole business as one big lie, two thousand and eight. And so began the painful revelation to thousands that all their monthly brokerage financial statements about how well they were doing, how well their portfolios were doing, was just one big lie. All the money was gone. Thousands, $50 billion by one man. There was nothing. Totally bankrupt. people that were living as millionaires had nothing overnight. The mask was pulled away. The whole thing was an absolute lie. I have to think that buyer's remorse at its worst was found here. Emotionally, some people have never recovered. Many committed suicide. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Actually, one of his sons committed suicide. That's how severe it is. When one day you wake up and you think that your reality is not reality. stop. It never was. The whole thing was a lie. And there's nothing you can do. And part of you hates yourself. Because the statements that were coming in look so good. It was meeting my desires. I didn't look careful enough. In 1999, a financial analyst named Harry Markopoulos informed the SEC, the Security and Exchange Commission, that he believed that it was both legally and mathematically impossible to achieve the gains Madoff claimed to deliver. Mathematically and legally impossible. According to uh, Mr. Makopoulos, he knew within five minutes that Madoff's numbers did not add up. And it took four hours of failed attempts to replicate them to conclude, finally, that Madoff was a fraud. This is in 1999. He was ignored by the Boston SEC in 2000 and 2001. That's, again, the Security and Exchange Commission as well as the New York Security and Exchange Commission in 2005 and 2007 for attempts he made when he presented further evidence. No one listened. Since then, he's, he's published a book, No One Would Listen, about the frustrating of efforts he and his team made over 10-year periods to alert the government, the industry, and the press about Madoff's fraud. The frustration. He was sounding the alarm, the evidence was all there, and no one paid any attention. No one listened is the name of the book. It's a great title, isn't it? But it's not original. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here when he quotes Psalm 95 Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion going back to after the Exodus when they left Egypt and we spoke about it a couple weeks under Paul at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that God was trying to get their attention and speaking to the people through the prophet Moses and guess what, no one listened no one listened 2,000, 1,500 years later in the book of Hebrews, the Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews is saying again that no one is 2,000 years later I can tell you under the authority of God's word Guess what? People are still not listening because of the deceitfulness of sin. That's all it is. It's the deceitfulness of sin. It's every minister's job to warn people of this, especially congregations. It's part of our job description to admonish, to rebuke, to instruct and to correct with all authority. Sin is so beguiling, so sneaky, so camouflage, and so long-suffering and patient, it will wait to ruin you. It will wait to, it will wait to ruin me. Those pastors that I'm speaking about, I'm not mentioning their names, national figures, understand something you possibly think they fell into sin in a week or a month? It was knocking at the door for weeks and for months and maybe even years and they didn't deal with things the way the Bible teaches us to deal with things to encourage one another. They isolated on the inside and then the inevitable happened. They find themselves in the arms of another woman. One's a woman found herself in the arms of another man. Two others didn't hear the rebuke of elders. Sin has the ability to turn people, even God's people, away from the living God. Amen. Amen. Let me give you a side note here. Though we believe in eternal security, please understand that. We're we're unashamed to speak like that. We believe absolutely the Bible teaches eternal security for those who are genuinely saved. The Bible consistently holds out to us the need, though, to hold on tight. The true believer takes these admonishments and these exhortations seriously in the heart. And they hold on to Christ, even though at times in our life, our grip gets weak. Amen. Amen or seems weak. Christ's grip is never weak on the genuine believer. It's these exhortations to hold firm. They're part of our eternal security. They have a persevering or preserving preservating factor to it. It's a component. I take the admonishment that I can fall into sin, very seriously, and it's that fear. As I read Scripture and I see it in Scripture, and I see it in the Old Testament, the New Testament, I see it throughout two thousand years of Christian history. I saw many greater men than myself fall into great sins. I've seen good men fall into bad sins. It's that stuff that keeps me close to Christ. It has a preservating effect. That's one of the ways we have eternal security. Eternal security is not like I'm going to sit back and God's going to take me to heaven after a 30-year binge on drugs and alcohol and women. Here I am, God. I walked down the aisle one day 30 years ago, and here I am, I'm dying. No, it's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. We're afraid on the inside to fall away from the living God. There's something in us that we can't sleep. God haunts our conscience. Though we might fall into sin... Sheep fall into the mud, but they're not comfortable in it. Pigs go into the mud and they love it, but not the saint. The saint can fall into sin, but never, ever be comfortable therein. It cannot. God won't allow a child to be comfortable in it. But historically and contextually, this chapter has much... This chapter, as much as the whole book, is aimed at the believers remaining faithful. Remember that. We'll get into that in application. To both Christ... In the heart and confession to an outside world. To hold firm with confidence your confession to the end. New Testament faith is never seen as a passive or silent faith, but it's active and alive. It's revealing itself at all times to all people through life and conversation. Sooner or later, if you're a Christian, people around you have to know you're a Christian. Because something on inside is happening. This living act of faith was being silenced in this book of Hebrews. And many people were returning to their old Jewish roots and to the law of Moses and to ceremony as opposed to just holding on to Christ. So our writer is encouraging them, as long as it's today, do not harden your hearts to Jesus, but return to him. He's filled with mercy and grace. Come back to Christ. What are the lessons we can learn from this text concerning remaining faithful? I could have put remaining faithful instead of deceitfulness of sin. At first look, it it seems negative. Don't be deceived. Don't be seduced, another translation says, by, by sin. But in the final analysis, it's not about just don't sin. Stop. Don't touch it. Don't touch the cookie. Don't do drink. Don't. It's, we can't, we're not running around trying to stop this and stop that. Those are moral exhortations. The Bible's filled in them. It's, it's more deeper than just don't sin. He's saying, remain faithful to Jesus, the author and perfector of your faith. Stay pure and honor Christ in your hearts. Set your hearts apart for the love of Christ. This is not about just be a little better than the other religions. Be a little better than you used to be. This is something much deeper. Remaining faithful, faithful to God in the life of holiness, of good works, of witness, of love and concern for other Christians. A loving spiritual community is what this, gen, this, this writer is concerned about. Remain a loving spiritual community serving the living God. Everyone doing their part is what he's saying. Remain faithful to God as a church, as a people, as the body of Christ. We need to be careful of thinking about being saved just in the, in the personal, well, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven terms. That's, that's salvation to some people. It's not. It's about the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. This is faithfulness to God. This is salvation. This is eternal life. Not about when I die and I'm going to heaven. It's about the kingdom of God here on earth through the living church as we serve the living God. And this is something sin can easily distract us from doing. Sin enters into the equation. You're never going to see someone filled with faithfulness to God as they're struggling with sin in their life. The exhortation to be, beware, be Be careful. Did anyone fall into an evil, unbelieving heart? is possible for any of us. What are some of the lessons we can learn from this text? Let's start in verse 12. If we could pull verse 12 up there. Take care, brothers, and of course sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you I could say, leading you to finally fall away from the living God. One of the lessons that the writer wants us to do is to have a very honest and genuine self-examination, self-evaluation of who we are in the faith, where we are. Paul uses the same language in 2 Corinthians when he says, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. It's interesting, take care brothers, is the same word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 of which we spoke about a couple of weeks ago when we spoke about take heed that you stand. Be careful that you think you stand is so spiritually strong, lest you fall. It's the same word. It means to look very carefully at something, to see something for what it is, to look so carefully at something as to draw a firm conclusion and make a final decision. It's not an observation. say, oh yeah, I saw the painting. It was beautiful. Yeah, I went on to something else. No, it is an observation that draws a moral conclusion and a firm decision. That's what it means. And that applies to all of us. Because all Christians, we have to make hard choices for the Lord sooner or later. Amen? And throughout our life, we'll find God calling us to make a hard choice. Usually many of them are the moral ones when we first get saved. They're dealing with the moral issues of our life. But as we get older in Christ, he starts making the heart decisions of pride and jealousy and arrogance and, 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 and slander. And the stuff that's deep inside our hearts that we don't even know we operate in. So we need to take care. We need to have a very, look very carefully at something. And to take heed, and we need to examine ourselves because there could be an evil, unbelieving heart manifesting and we don't even see it because of the deceitfulness of sin. Deceitfulness of sin is synonymous with self... self Self-deception. Same thing. Deceitfulness of sin and... Synonymous with mankind's great propensity to self-deception. We love to be deceived. What do you think those people were getting the statements every month? Look at my portfolio. I'm getting 20%. 20. Twenty. It's too good to be real. You're right. It was too good to be real. You should have looked closer. But I don't want to because it feels so good. <laughs> That's right. Praise the Lord. Until the day came and people woke up having their cup of coffee and there's Madoff getting dragged away, ruining thousands and thousands of innocent people's lives. Not even an apology. Look very careful into your own heart why you do anything, why you say anything. Look, make a decision, make a clear conclusion because an unbelieving evil heart could be being birthed in your life right now. This verse shows us that sin, this is important to know, is not always just a sin issue. I know, oxymoron, no. But it's a heart issue. What the writer is saying here in in verse 12 is deal with the heart before you have to deal with sin. Because if you deal with with the heart, guess what you won't have to deal with? You won't have to deal with sin. Deal with the heart first, the root, before you have to trim the fruit. Self-examination. Before sin enters and begins its slow methodical kill, the heart begins to rationalize or justify certain attitudes about God, about holiness, about Christ, about salvation, about life, or what personal happiness is, which in turn leads people slowly away from God. Instead of a God with trajectory, and that's all our life, I don't care if we're saved 40 years 50 years makes, we should always have a Godward trajectory in heart to the Lord. A purifying effect on my heart. The heart of worship, it's all about you, Jesus. A heart, a Godward trajectory. If not, there's going to be a worldly trajectory. Jesus called this. In the parable of the sower, he says the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things comes and chokes out the word and does what? Makes it unprofitable. It's a slow death. It's not like the the one, the first seed that received it were all joy, but he had no root. As soon as persecution came a week later, it was gone. These people had a very strong profession of faith. They were going to church. They had their Bibles. They were singing hallelujah songs. But slowly but surely, the deceitfulness of sin in their heart was concerned more about the cares of the world than the kingdom of God. More concerned about the deceitfulness of riches than the riches that are found in Christ. More concerned about the desire for other things than concerned about what God has given them in Christ. And slowly but surely, it comes and chokes out the word and makes it, as Jesus says, unprofitable. Humble self-evaluation is probably the first line of defense. But understand something, we can't rely on ourselves. We really can't. It really should be. But the truth of the matter is we're so, everyone in this room is so prone to self-deception. We're kind of biased to ourselves, aren't we? I think it's Proverbs 16 that says that all man's ways are right in his own eyes. There's something about justifying our own little sins and, you know, this and that. We come out pretty clean, don't we? We look pretty good. We look all right. But the writer of Hebrews calls it evil, unbelieving heart. There's no low view of sin in this book. There's no low view of not honoring Christ with everything in this book. It's all or nothing. Verse 13 says this, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The heart that rationalizes and justifies certain thoughts about God, a heart that rationalizes and justifies certain actions about themselves in this world we live in. And has a low view of God and a low view of holiness, a low view of sin, a low view of hell, a low view of heaven. A heart that rationalizes like this will eventually rationalize and justify sinful actions. Before Before Eve took the fruit and ate it, she was seduced into believing it would make her wise and be like God. Sin only looks good in anticipation, but it will always take you further than you want to go and it will cost more than you ever could pay. And we've all tasted that. We all have certain regrets that, God, I'm so glad I'm forgiven. I'm speaking for the first person myself. There are certain things in my life I'm just so glad I'm forgiven. But God only knows I wish I never done them. I know I'm forgiven. But I wish I'd never done it. Amen. Thinking somehow that passing pleasures of sin are greater value than Jesus and salvation, the passing pleasures of sin are somehow greater than personal holiness of witnessing for Christ, that somehow the passing pleasures of sin are a greater value than faithfulness and a clean conscience, the intangibles of Scripture. The intangibles of the presence of the Spirit of God in us. Contentment with nothing, Paul calls it. Their hearts. It means they set their affections on something other than Christ. And we can all do it. There are things in all our life, there might be things in our life right now. As a matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews talks about it in the 12th chapter. He says, not just to lay aside the things sin that so easily entangles you, but... The things that so easily hinder us, not necessarily sin, but they can, they can lead us away from a fervent, faithful, loving relationship with Christ. Our hearts can be easily deceived and then hardened. That's how it works. You're deceived, your eyes are off Christ, or you got half an eye on Christ, you got an eye over here, you got half an eye over here. You're back and forth, I'm going to church, but I'm also doing this, and I'm back and forth, I'm back and forth, and before you know it, you don't even realize that you're getting colder and colder and further and further away from Jesus. Do you know how many people over 25 years of salvation I see that I worshipped with, I prayed with, I've, I've seen repentance, i baptized them, I've married them to their wives, i dedicated their children. And when you see them now, it's like looking at someone that never saw Christ in their life. And I look at them and... One gentleman, I was texting for about a year, must have reached out to him at least a dozen times over a year, reaching out, I know he was going into the world... Someone who worshipped, who led worship, loved the Lord, never returned a call. And then one day, uh, unbeknownst to him on his jog, he turned a corner and guess who was there reading his Bible? (laughs) The pastor. Uh, I'm doing well. Oh. I'm living with my girl. Oh, you live with your girlfriend. You're really doing well over here, huh? I'm happy for you. You're doing that great, huh? Is that why you're not coming to church and worshiping God and being used by Him now? Because you're doing so good. Come on. But that's the deceitfulness of sin. Really believe he he bit into this. The prodigal son, when he went off into a far country here, the, the, the cry of the far country, do you think for a while he thought he was living large? I got the inheritance, I'm not feeling dirty, I'm eating, I'm whining, and dying, I'm, I'm doing good. I got, I got the memories of God and I got this, the, 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 the cry of the far country and, and then one day he's eating pods with the pigs. You don't see it happen. Before you know it, you're just there. You wouldn't listen. This friend wouldn't listen. Hearts get hard. They don't see the danger. They don't see the final end. Living for the moment. Personal happiness over honoring God. That's faithfulness. Choosing personal happiness. But pastor, he loves me. Is he a Christian, he says he loves God. You know how many times I've heard that? Is she a Christian? She goes to church. We'll deceive ourselves. We'll, we'll do anything. We can rationalize anything because we want it. Just like our, our consumers, they, they, they wanted to hear what Murdoch was saying. They wanted that. They loved it. They didn't question it. Unequivocally, they entrusted him. Hedge funds gave him hundreds of millions of dollars. Gone. Evaporated. Totally gone. Ruined. No one questioned. Nobody was examining. They were living for personal moment and personal happiness over honoring God. People in the church are not examining themselves. How do you examine yourself? Do you wake up in the morning and say, Hi, self. How are you doing? I think James says it best. Don't be a hearer of the... And not a... Otherwise you'd be like a man who looks at himself in the... And as soon as he walks away, he... It's the word of God. How is my life and my actions and my inner attitudes living up to the acid test of Scripture? Well, I don't know. I don't go to church. uh Ah, you're neglecting the fellowship of the saints. That's what he exhorts us here. Exhort one another every day. That's what Christians do. They think that a weekly statement of, I went to church. What was the sermon about? Don't know, but it was good. (laughs) Are revealing their, their true status. Little do they know, just going to church can be one of the greatest Ponzi schemes ever. People are going to church, but they're not going to heaven. Wait till that Ponzi scheme is revealed. Wait till the religious resume people sit there with, devoted for decades upon decades upon decades to church, but not to Christ. And then they die and they hear these dreaded words. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. It's a fine scheme. But to hear the word week in and week out and to continue in sin is a sure recipe to harden your heart. Sometimes beyond remedy. The 10th chapter says this, If we continue to sin, after coming to the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for us, but only one thing, a fearful expectation to fall into the hands of the living God. That's all that's left. Because why? They trampled underfoot the precious blood of Jesus Christ and insulted the spirit of grace the spirit of grace that reveals Christ in every faithful sermon. Do you think I, it's my job to it's my job to be true to the scripture, it's Pastor John's job to be true to the scripture, true to the text, true to exposition and lifting up Christ, but when you don't obey, it's not me, you're not obeying, you're not obeying the spirit of grace. You're insulting and we're insulting the spirit of That reveals Christ. His salvation and his goodness. Though this can happen on the eternal scale. Of what I was just speaking about right now. It could also happen on an earthly scale. Christians toying with sin is a dangerous, dangerous Somewhere before those pastors fell, God was surely speaking to them. But guess what? They did not. I hope you're good and scared on the inside. I hope you're really saying, Pastor, tell me something good. I will. It's Christ. Amen. Remain faithful to Christ. Yes. Amen. That's the good news i got no other news for you. Remain faithful to Christ. What's the answer? Well, besides, continue humble self-evaluation with personal confession. I can tell you right now, you can have all the personal, genuine, honest evaluation you want. But unless you're confessing your sins to one another, you're going to be weak. Because that's part of the self-deception nature. We'll say, oh God, I'm a sinner, oh God, I'm doing this, oh God, I'm doing that. But when, when God puts it on your heart, well, speak to the pastor, go go for prayer, confess that, and nobody wants to do it. That's part of self-deception. We need what verse 13 commands, and it is a command. When it says, exhort one another each day, that's in the imperative. If you don't know what that means, that means... Daily, every day, um, you're commanded to exhort, to encourage, and edify one another in a life of holiness so you don't self deceive, you don't fall into deceitfulness of sin. This is the second line of defense. After genuine, honest self evaluation with confession, we exhort one another in a community of faith because we know the days are evil. We know today's the day when you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. And so we don't fall into it. We encourage one another like we're doing right now through the preaching of the word. Christian community is the only real safeguard from a deceitful, beguiling, seducing nature of sin. There is no other. Christ is not building anything else but the Christian church. His spirit and his revelation of our hearts are found in Christian community. Not at home just reading your Bible. As good as that is and we need to do that. My friend who I witnessed to, who I reached out for a year, who was part of the Christian community for years, who didn't answer a text, didn't answer a phone call for a year, but when he saw me, understood he was reading his Bible while he was living with his girlfriend. It's the epitome, the quintessential picture of self-deception. I'll tell you, the the American church is uh, is a train wreck. It's an absolute train wreck, if we're not careful. I want to read something from an a author, bring the book. The name is Paul Tripp. Good man, good minister, famous in the reformed circles. It's called, the name of the book is uh, Dangerous Calling. It's for ministers, not just for ministers, though. But Paul Tripp is, uh, gives a self-evaluation of his own heart and his own family life. I am not want to give you a little portion, but he actually goes in depth about his father, his mother, his family, his, uh, his church. But let me just give you an excerpt from this. He goes on to say this. For much of my Christian life, a portion of my, and a portion of my ministry, I had no idea that my walk with God was a community project. I had no idea that the Christian, Christianity of the New Testament is distinctly relational from beginning to end. I understood none of the dangers inherent in attempting to live the Christian life on my own. I had no awareness of the blinding power of remaining sin. I had no idea that I was living outside of God's normal means of sightedness and encouragement and conviction and strength and growth. I had no idea how much consumerism And how little true participation marked the body of Christ. I had no idea of the importance of the private ministry of the word of God for the health of the believer. I had no idea. I have come to understand that I need others in my life. I know that I need to commit myself to a living, to living intentionally in an intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. What are you saying? I need to live intentionally with other people that are allowed to speak into my life. To be intrusive with love. And to say, you know something? What's going on, brother? I see an inconsistency in your life. Tell me what's going on in marriage. Tell me what's going on in work. Tell me what's going on with the secretary. Tell me what's going on I know what you struggled with 10 years ago. Is, Is anything going on? We need to live in relationships that are intrusive, lovingly, redemptively intrusive is what this man is saying. He had no idea, he says. I have realized how much I need warning in my life. I need encouragement. I need to be rebuked. I need correction. But I also need protection and grace and love. I see myself as connected to others, not because I made the choice, but because of the wise design of the one who is the head of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't his great reasoning that brought him to this final conclusion. It's the design of God to live in community and exhort one another, edify one another, correct one another, be intrusive into each other's life in a loving way, to speak to each other so we don't fall prey to the deceitfulness of sin that ends up having a hardened effect on our heart and falling away from the living God. This friend of mine that I'm telling you, he served God for years, he is nowhere on the planet, wants nothing to do with God. What happened to him? Why isn't it going to be me next week? Why is it not going to be you? Well, one thing I can be sure of, i got enough people in my life that know me, know my weaknesses, know my failures, know my propensities for sin, and they can lovingly bring it to my attention. Though it's awkward at times, we need to hear it. Amen? Yes. We need to hear it. And then where do we do that? Do we, do we call one another up and say, well, it's confession time? You confess to me, and I'll confess to you. It's done in mutual fellowship. When we me and one of the brothers we go out golfing, we we golf, we enjoy hacking the well, the Greens keep it on enjoy it, that's for sure. But in there is fellowship and in there is confession and in there is encouragement. We do it in fellowship. We do it in coffee. I had a friend of mine came in from Arizona. He's another minister. And we met him and his wife and me until we met on Thursday. And we had a great time for the first 45 minutes, maybe an hour. Uh, My wife had to run back to work. and, And out of nowhere, it turned into heartfelt confession and ministry of grace. And they were going through things that just came up as we spoke. And they were encouraged. I was encouraged. We weren't meeting to uncover, we were meeting to just love one another, and it turned into this just out of normal fellowship. Are you living in isolation? Do, do you really have genuine Christianity? Is there men and women that can look you in the eye and say, I think you're self-deceived and you might be lying, and not get highly offensive? Do you have that kind of community? Do you have that kind of friendship? Are you exhorting one another? Let's close. Let me give you some thoughts. Life without Jesus is the biggest Ponzi scheme ever. And many people are going to find out at the end, unfortunately, unless we get Christ to them. The next bad one is this. Is a Christian without fellowship. Christian, with our genuine heartfelt fellowship and concern for each other, eventually he's going to wake up and say, how did I get here? How did I get here? There's an interesting observation here. When it comes to exhorting one another, when it comes to encouraging one another, we don't point to one another, we point to Christ. Just what the author of Hebrews was doing. Throughout the whole letter, he points to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He points to the faithfulness of Christ. In chapter 2, he talks to the faithfulness of Christ. He learned obedience through the things he suffered. He was exalted to the right hand of God. He points to Christ and his obedience. When we encourage each other, I can share a testimony of what God has done in my life. I can share a testimony about God in someone else's life, but the genuine testimony that's going to change your life and change my life is point to the faithfulness of Christ. That's our job. We are a community of people that point each other back to Christ. Come on, he's merciful. Come on, he's filled with grace. Come on, he wants to hear from you. Come on, he longs to see you. He misses you. He loves you. He's faithful. He's been tempted with all things, but yet without sin. And he's a merciful and sympathetic high priest who can answer all our needs in times of temptation. Do you want to hear how much I love you? Or do you want to hear how much Christ loves you? That's what we do. We point people to Christ. Father, we thank you for everything you've done. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the church, God. We thank you for this invisible, the intangible virtues of the church where people look in and they just see a bunch of riffraff at times, it looks like. But inside is the genuine work of Almighty God, the creator of all things. As the Bible says, you're the living God. And you're doing nothing anywhere else redemptively but in your church, God. And it's in your church. It's through preaching and fellowship and prayer and exhortation and correction and rebuke over cups of coffee, over long times on the phone. It's in that place, God, of genuine love, of speaking the truth that you change our hearts. And you encourage us to not fall away from you through the deceitfulness of sin. In your name I pray.